In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. At the end of our Old Testament lesson this morning, the Israelites ask a question that portrays a significant problem for God's people. It's rather strange that they would ask it, considering all of God's saving activity God had performed in their midst. Consider all the signs and wonders that they had borne witness to up to that point. The plagues upon Egypt. The parting of the Red Sea. God leading them by a pillar of cloud and fire. Bitter and undrinkable water made sweet. Bread from heaven and quail to eat. But then they had the audacity to ask, Is the Lord among us or not? Only the more that we think about it, it isn't all that surprising at all. If we are familiar with the narrative of God's Old Testament people, it isn't all that surprising at all. If we have a little bit of honesty with ourselves, if we actually reflect on our own Christian lives and how we react to the circumstances in our lives, even though we've borne witness to God's saving activity among us. It's a question that we often ask ourselves as we wander through the wilderness of this life. It's a question that we might be asking as we journey through this Lenten season. Where is God? Is He truly with me? Is He actually with our congregation? Is He with His people? Now at times we might ask this question because we are desperate for God to calm our fears with His presence and to soothe our consciences with His peace and His pardon. It's like a child who longs for a parent to be near, for comfort. But that was not the heart behind the question whenever the Israelites were asking it. That's not why they asked it. They asked because they were assuming something false about God. They assumed that if He did not provide for them in exactly the way they thought was good, then Ultimately, God was not good. But I want you to consider what was driving this type of thinking. Consider what actually caused them to doubt God's goodness and His presence among them. It was the remnants of their former lives. They were used to having a master that provided for, uh, sorry, they were not used to having a master that provided for their needs out of fatherly divine goodness. They lived in bondage in Egypt for 400 years. They were driven by a cruel taskmaster. They lived lives of constant worry and they developed this natural impulse to grumble and to complain. And while they depended on Pharaoh for everything that they needed to sustain their lives, their relationship with Pharaoh was not one of trust, but of oppression. So when God delivered them from Egypt and brought them out from under Pharaoh's rule, when God made them his own people, trust was, some, it was not something that they knew by default, but it was a behavior that they had to learn. It's why God delayed their entry into the promised land. It's why it took 40 years to get there. Because trust was something that they had to learn. It's even the point of why God brought them to the place where they experienced thirst today. 
What we see in Exodus chapter 17 is the people's reaction to not having their needs met right away and in the way that they thought was best. And because they doubted the goodness of God, what they defaulted to was actually treating him like Pharaoh. The worry from their former lives of not having their needs met compelled them not to turn to God, but to lash out. In verses 2 and 3, we see them come to Moses, demanding that he give them water to drink. Now, it's one thing to to, to want to have your needs met. That's one thing. But it's quite another to come to God in hostility and anger. God allowed them to experience thirst because he wanted them to come to him for his provision. He was the God that saved and redeemed them. God was not bringing them out of Egypt to let them die in the desert in spite of their baseless accusation against him. That was not his plan for them. All they had to do was ask, and he would graciously provide for them. But instead, they demanded, they quarreled, they accused. Moses cried out to God in exasperation. What shall I do with these people? They are almost ready to stone me. Rather than kill them where they stood, which is what you and I would want to do, uh, the Lord had mercy and the Lord had patience towards them. He would provide for them, just as he said he would. Moses was to take his staff to this rock at Horeb, also known as Sinai, and God himself would stand before the people on the rock something that we often miss in this text. God himself would stand before the people on the rock. That's verse 6. What is he saying when he says that I will stand before the people? He was saying that he would be among them, that he would deliver, that he would bring his saving activity through his means. And it happened just as he said. Moses struck the rock The waters flowed out, and the people drank freely that day because of God's merciful provision. Was the Lord among them or not? Yes. Yes, He was. He proved Himself to be the rock of their salvation, which is what the psalmist is saying in our psalm from this morning, Psalm 95. He had redeemed them. He had provided for them every step of the way. He ultimately, and he alone, was worthy of their trust and their reliance. Pharaoh isn't calling the shots anymore. Pharaoh's not running the show. They have a new master, one who is merciful, one who provides out of his fatherly divine goodness. And yet this place where this happened would be called Massa which means testing, or it would also be known as Meribah, which means quarreling. And both names are referenced in our psalm for today. If if you caught it this morning in verses 7 through 9, part of that psalm is a warning for us. Here's what it says. It says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, As on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. 
God had redeemed his people from their former life. But you know what? Old habits die hard. God was teaching them to live under his gracious care, but still they wanted to bring Egypt with them. And they hardened their hearts against God. And as I said before, it took 40 whole years for that first generation to die off so that God could ultimately do with his people what he promised to do. And that was to bring them into the promised land. But nonetheless, even though he tested them, even though he taught them hard lessons, he was there. He was among them. He was with them the whole way. St. Paul in the New Testament gives us a very clear connection from this passage and for the life of God's New Testament church today. And here's the key. It's, it's in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, if you're curious. 1 Corinthians 10, the first four verses. Here's what it says. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud, and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. So as if in answer to the question, is God among us or not, St. Paul reveals to us that the rock of their salvation was Christ. The rock was Christ. Was God among them or not? The rock that followed them was Christ. Would He provide for their every need? The rock from which they drank was Christ. Would He defend them on every side? The rock in which they took refuge was Christ. Would He get them into the promised land? Well, they passed through the Jordan. The priests turned around and they put 12 rocks in the river as a memorial to what God had done. All of those 12 rocks, which represented the tribes of Israel, pointed ultimately to the true Israel, who is Christ. So is the Lord among us or not? Let us not ask this question in hard-heartedness. Let us not ask this question in quarreling. Let us ask it earnestly. Because our lives in this world are actually patterned after the wilderness wanderings. And the scriptures teach us, the scriptures exhort us to learn from the examples of the unbelief and the sin of our fathers. They were baptized into Moses in the Red Sea. They were brought out of slavery to Pharaoh. We've been baptized into Christ and brought out of the slavery of sin and death. They ate spiritual food, the spiritual food of manna from heaven, and they drank the spiritual drink of water from the rock. We eat the very body of Christ, the bread of heaven. We drink his blood which flowed from his side when he, the rock of our salvation, was struck upon the cross. You see, the salvation of the Israelites was only a prefiguring. It was a foreshadowing. It was a thumbnail of something far greater that was to come. What we have now 
was prefigured in Israel. It was a, a foretaste of this, of this saving activity of God that would be made available to all through the death and resurrection of Christ and His promises of free forgiveness that are now handed over to God's people, that are now here handed over to you in the Word and in the sacraments. But we too are given to grumbling and complaining. Though we know Christ as the rock of our salvation, though we've been baptized into Him and are free to eat and drink of Him, we still question His goodness and His provision. We default back to our lives in Egypt. We default back to the sinful flesh, the former way of living. Because you know what? We've actually been catechized by the world. We've been taught very well by our own sinful flesh. And we've been taught everything we need to know by the devil. But because we've been brought into the kingdom of Christ, we have to unlearn what we've learned in that former life. We have a new master. We are not under Pharaoh anymore. And as we journey through this life on the way to the promised land of eternal life in a new heaven and a new earth, God is teaching us the same hard lessons that he was teaching his Old Testament people. We are learning every day to trust God, to rely upon him. We are learning not to harden our hearts as our fathers did in the wilderness. We are learning that our rock is Christ. Because your God has redeemed you, and because He has delivered you from bondage to sin and death, He has now brought you under His care. He is running the show in your life now. And He is calling you away from dependence on your former masters. I wish I had time to spend on this, but let me tell you, there are no worse slave drivers than your sinful flesh, than the world, and than the devil. That's tyrannical. That's real tyranny. A lot of times we get this confused. We think that living under God's care is life in tyranny. If you are worried that your needs will not be met by your new master, if you are driven to grumbling and complaining because you don't like the way that God goes about answering your prayers at times, you have only to look to the means that He has provided to you to prove and demonstrate His faithfulness to you. On the cross, Jesus bled and died for your sins. He was struck, split open just as the rock at Horeb. And blood and water poured forth from his side. You may doubt God's goodness and his ability to provide for you, but behold the cross and see your master providing for you everything that you need for eternal life at the cost of his own. He's calling you away from dependence on Pharaoh. 
He's calling you to trust Him. So what does that everyday dependence look like in your life? What does it mean for you to rely on the rock? If this life, you know, whenever you became a Christian, whenever you became a Christian, God didn't just snap you up into heaven. Whenever He saved and redeemed the Israelites, He didn't just immediately bring them to the promised land. It's almost like he wants to teach us something in this life, right? So if this life is ultimately about learning to trust him and preparing for eternity, then what does it mean for you to build that into your daily living? Because that's what we're doing here. This life is meant to get you ready for the life of the world to come. So let me give you two things here. And this is, this is revolutionary. I'm going to make some money on some books talking about this right here. Ready? First, it means that you regularly use the means of grace. The means that God has established to provide for your ongoing spiritual care. I'm just kidding. That's not going to sell any books. On the first Sunday in Lent, we heard Jesus quote from the book of Deuteronomy. He said, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The way that you unlearn what you've learned in Egypt is by continually receiving God's provision for the new life in Him. In baptism, which is received once. Holy absolution. The Lord's Supper. The preaching of the Gospel. In all of these things, you are met with God's promises. Those things from which the, the Israelites could only view from afar. You are, giving some, you are given something far greater than they were given. The resurrection unto eternal life. Relying upon the rock means relying upon the means of grace. Do not neglect them. This is what Scripture means whenever it says... If today you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. That means he wants you to meet him where he promises to be, where he promises to speak to you. He wants you to lay hold of his promises. And those promises are what create, strengthen, and sustain faith. And that faith is this trust that we've been talking about. So that's the first thing. The second thing to do, as you learn to trust Him for everything good in your life, is that you learn to pray. I told you, revolutionary. You learn to pray. Sometimes the Lord permits you to suffer a little while. He permits you to thirst for just a little bit. Why? Not so that you'll grumble and complain, but so that you will learn to go to Him for what you need. But I, I, I don't have the words to do that. Yes, you do. We pray it all the time in the divine service. We pray it all the time in our community groups. We pray it all the time in our Bible study. The Lord's Prayer. That's what it is. That's why Jesus gave it to you. That's not to say that's the only prayer you get to pray. But use that to model your prayer life. What is the Lord's Prayer except humbly going before God and asking for what you need? Is he going to give you what you need uh, without you asking? Yes. Yes, he will. But the Lord's Prayer teaches us to rely upon him. 
to depend upon him. Because your relationship with him is not one of oppression, but of trust. This is not Pharaoh we're talking about here. This is not the sinful flesh, the world, or the devil that is driving you as a cruel taskmaster. This is your heavenly father who wants you to trust him. Your heavenly father knows how to clothe the lilies of the field. He knows how to feed the flocks of sparrows. He can even bring water from a rock. He certainly knows how to take care of you. He certainly knows how to give you what you need in this life of wilderness wandering. Is God among us or not? Has he provided a rock for us? The rock is Christ. May he grant you grace to trust him more every day during this Lenten season. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.